0: Part four, Chapters Five and Six of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Part four. Influence of Democratic Opinions on Political Society. Chapter V. THAT AMONGST THE EUROPEAN NATIONS OF OUR TIME THE POWER OF GOVERNMENTS IS INCREASING, ALTHOUGH THE PERSONS WHO GOVERN ARE LESS STABLE. ON REFLECTING UPON WHAT HAS ALREADY BEEN SAID, THE READER WILL BE STARTLED AND ALARMED TO FIND THAT IN EUROPE EVERYTHING SEEMS TO CONDUCE TO THE INDEFINITE EXTENSION OF THE PREROGATIVES OF GOVERNMENT, AND TO RENDER ALL THAT ENJOYED THE RIGHTS OF PRIVATE INDEPENDENCE MORE WEAK, MORE SUBORDINATE, AND MORE PRECARIOUS the democratic nations of Europe have all the general and permanent tendencies which urge the Americans to the centralization of government, and they are, moreover, exposed to a number of secondary and incidental causes with which the Americans are unacquainted. It would seem as if every step they make towards equality brings them nearer to despotism. And, indeed, if we do but cast our looks around, we shall be convinced that such is the fact." During the aristocratic ages which preceded the present time, the sovereigns of Europe had been deprived of, or had relinquished, many of the rights inherent in their power. Not a hundred years ago, amongst the greater part of European nations, numerous private persons and corporations were sufficiently independent to administer justice, to raise and maintain troops, to levy taxes, and frequently even to make or interpret the law. THE STATE HAS EVERYWHERE RESUMED TO ITSELF ALONE THESE NATURAL ATTRIBUTES OF SOVEREIGN POWER. IN ALL MATTERS OF GOVERNMENT THE STATE TOLERATES NO INTERMEDIATE AGENT BETWEEN ITSELF AND THE PEOPLE, AND IN GENERAL BUSINESS IT DIRECTS THE PEOPLE BY ITS OWN IMMEDIATE INFLUENCE. I AM FAR FROM BLAMING THIS CONCENTRATION OF POWER. I SIMPLY point it OUT. AT THE SAME PERIOD A GREAT NUMBER OF SECONDARY POWERS EXISTED IN EUROPE, WHICH REPRESENT LOCAL INTERESTS AND ADMINISTER LOCAL AFFAIRS. Most of these local authorities have already disappeared. All are speedily tending to disappear, or to fall into the most complete dependence. From one end of Europe to the other the privileges of the nobility, the liberty of cities, and the powers of provincial bodies, are either destroyed or upon the verge of destruction. Europe has endured, in the course of the last half-century, many revolutions and counter-revolutions, which have agitated it in opposite directions, but all these perturbations resemble each other in one respect. They have all shaken or destroyed the secondary powers of government. The local privileges which the French did not establish in the countries they conquered have finally succumbed to the policy of the princes who conquered the French. These princes rejected all the innovations of the French Revolution except centralization. That is the only principle they consented to receive from such a source. My object is to remark that all these various rights— which have been successively wrested, in our time, from classes, corporations, and individuals, have not served to raise new secondary powers on a more democratic basis, but have uniformly been concentrated in the hands of the sovereign. Everywhere the State acquires more and more direct control over the humblest members of the community, and a more exclusive power of governing each of them is in his smallest concerns. Almost all the charitable establishments of Europe were formerly in the hands of private persons or of corporations. They are now almost all dependent on the supreme government, and in many countries are actually administered by that power. The State almost exclusively undertakes to supply bread to the hungry, assistance and shelter to the sick, work to the idle, and act as the sole reliever of all kinds of misery. Education, as well as charity, is become in most countries at the present day a national concern. The state receives, and often takes, the child from the arms of the mother, to hand it over to official agents. The state undertakes to train the hearts and to instruct the mind of each generation. Uniformity prevails in the courses of public instruction, as in everything else. Diversity, as well as freedom, is disappearing day by day nor do i hesitate to affirm that amongst almost all the christian nations of our days catholic as well as protestant religion is in danger of falling into the hands of the government not that rulers are over jealous of the right of settling points of doctrine but they get more and more hold upon the will of those by whom doctrines are expounded they deprive the clergy of their property and pay them by salaries they divert to their own use the influence of the priesthood They make them their own ministers, often their own servants, and by this alliance with religion they reach the inner depths of the soul of man. But this is as yet only one side of the picture. The authority of government has not only spread, as we have just seen, throughout the sphere of all existing powers, till that sphere can no longer contain it, but it goes further and invades the domain heretofore reserved to private independence. A multitude of actions, which were formerly entirely beyond the control of the public administration, have been subjected to that control in our time, and the number of them is constantly increasing. Amongst these nations the government often seem to forget that there is a point at which the faults and the sufferings of private persons involve the general prosperity, and that to prevent the ruin of a private individual must sometimes be a matter of public importance. The democratic nations of our time lean to the opposite extreme. It is evident that most of our rulers will not content themselves with governing the people collectively. It would seem as if they thought themselves responsible for the actions and private condition of their subject, as if they had undertaken to guide and to instruct each of them in the various incidents of life, and to secure their happiness quite independently of their own consent. On the other hand, private individuals grow more and more apt to look upon the supreme power in the same light, they invoke its assistance in all their necessities, and they fix their eyes upon the administration as their mentor or guide. I assert that there is no country in Europe in which the public administration has not become not only more centralized, but more inquisitive and more minute. It everywhere interferes in private concerns more than it did. It regulates more undertakings, and undertakings of a lesser kind, and it gains a firmer footing every day about above and around all private persons to assist advise and to coerce them formerly a sovereign lived upon the income of his lands or the revenue of his taxes this is no longer the case now that his wants have increased as well as his power under the same circumstances which formerly compelled a prince to put on a new tax he now has recourse to a loan thus the state gradually becomes the debtor of most of the wealthier members of the community and centralizes the largest amounts of capital in its own hands. Small capital is drawn into its keeping by other method. As men are intermingled and conditions become more equal, the poor have more resources, more education, and more desires. They conceive the notion of bettering their condition, and this teaches them to save. These savings are daily producing an infinite number of small capitals, the slow and gradual produce of labor, which are always increasing but the greater part of this money would be unproductive if it remained scattered in the hands of its owners this circumstance has given rise to a philanthropic institution which will soon become if i am not mistaken one of our most important political institutions some charitable persons conceived the notion of collecting the savings of the poor and placing them out at interest in some countries these benevolent associations are still completely distinct from the state but in almost all they manifestly tend to identify themselves with the government, and in some of them the government has superseded them, taking upon itself the enormous task of centralizing in one place, and putting out at interest on its own responsibility, the daily savings of many millions of the working classes. Thus the State draws to itself the wealth of the rich by loans, and has the poor man's might at its disposal in the savings-banks." The wealth of the country is perpetually flowing around the government, and passing through its hands. The accumulation increases in the same proportion as the equality of conditions, for, in a democratic country, the State alone inspires private individuals with confidence, because the State alone appears to be endowed with strength and durability. Thus the Sovereign does not confine himself to the management of the public treasury. He interferes in private money matters. He is the superior, and often the master, of all the members of the community, and in addition to this, he assumes the part of their steward and paymaster. The central power not only fulfills of itself the whole of the duties formerly discharged by various authorities, extending those duties and surpassing those authorities, but it performs them with more alertness, strength, and independence than it displayed before. All the governments of Europe have, in our time, singularly improved the science of administration, They do more things, and they do everything with more order, more celerity, and at less expense. They seem to be constantly enriched by all the experience of which they have stripped private persons. From day to day the princes of Europe hold their subordinate officers under stricter control, and they invent new methods for guiding them more closely, and inspecting them with less trouble. Not content with managing everything by their agents, they undertake to manage the conduct of their agents in everything so that the public administration not only depends upon one and the same power, but it is more and more confined to one spot, and concentrated in the same hands. The government centralizes its agency, whilst it increases its prerogative, hence a twofold increase of strength. In examining the ancient constitution of the judicial power, amongst most European nations, two things strike the mind, the independence of that power and the extent of its functions. Not only did the courts of justice decide almost all differences between private persons, but in very many cases they acted as arbiters between private persons and the state. I do not here allude to the political and administrative offices which courts of judicature had in some countries usurped, but the judicial office common to them all. In most of the countries of Europe there were, and there still are, many private rights, connected for the most part with the general right of property, which stood under the protection of the courts of justice, and which the state could not violate without their sanction. It was this semi-political power which mainly distinguished the European courts of judicature from all others, for all nations have had judges, but not all have invested their judges with the same privileges. Upon examining what is now occurring amongst the democratic nations of Europe which are called free, as well as amongst the others, it will be observed that new and more dependent courts are everywhere springing up by the side of the old ones, for the express purpose of deciding, by an extraordinary jurisdiction, such litigated matters as may arise between the government and private persons. The elder judicial power retains its independence, but its jurisdiction is narrowed, and there is a growing tendency to reduce it to be exclusively the arbiter between private interests the number of these special courts of justice is continually increasing, and their functions increase likewise. Thus the government is more and more absolved from the necessity of subjecting its policy and its rights to the sanction of another power. As judges cannot be dispensed with, at least the State is to select them, and always to hold them under its control, so that between the government and private individuals they place the effigy of justice rather than justice itself. The state is not satisfied with drawing all concerns to itself, but it acquires an ever-increasing power of deciding on them all without restriction and without appeal. There exists amongst the modern nations of Europe one great cause, independent of all those which have already been pointed out, which perpetually contributes to extend the agency or to strengthen the prerogative of the supreme power, though it has not been sufficiently attended to i mean the growth of manufactures which is fostered by the progress of social equality manufactures generally collect a multitude of men of the same spot amongst whom new and complex relations spring up these men are exposed by their calling to great and sudden alternations of plenty and want during which public tranquillity is endangered it may also happen that these employments sacrifice the health and even the life of those who gain by them or of those who live by them thus the manufacturing classes require more regulation superintendence and restraint than the other classes of society and it is natural that the powers of government should increase in the same proportion as those classes this is a truth of general application what follows more especially concerns the nations of europe in the centuries which preceded that in which we live the aristocracy was in possession of the soil and was competent to defend it. Landed property was therefore surrounded by ample securities, and its possessors enjoyed great independence. This gave rise to laws and customs which have been perpetuated, notwithstanding the subdivision of lands and the ruin of the nobility, and at the present time landowners and agriculturists are still those, amongst the community, who must easily escape from the control of the supreme power." In these same aristocratic ages, in which all the sources of our history are to be traced, personal property was of small importance, and those who possessed it were despised and weak. The manufacturing class formed an exception in the midst of those aristocratic communities, as it had no certain patronage, it was not outwardly protected, and was often unable to protect itself. Hence a habit sprung up of considering manufacturing property as something of a peculiar nature, not entitled to the same deference, and not worthy of the same securities as property in general, and manufacturers were looked upon as a small class in the bulk of the people, whose independence was of small importance, and who might, with propriety, be abandoned to the disciplinary passions of princes. On glancing over the codes of the Middle Ages, one is surprised to see, in those periods of personal independence, with what incessant royal regulations manufacturers were hampered, even in their smallest details. On this point centralization was as active and as minute as it can ever be. Since that time a great revolution has taken place in the world. Manufacturing property, which was then only in the germ, has spread till it covers Europe. The manufacturing class has been multiplied and enriched by the remnants of all other ranks. It has grown and is still perpetually growing in number, in importance, in wealth. Almost all those who do not belong to it are connected with it on at least some one point. After having been an exception in society, it threatens to become the chief, if not the only class. Nevertheless, the notions and political precedents engendered by it of old still cling about it. These notions and these precedents remain unchanged, because they are old, and also because they happen to be in perfect accordance with the new notions and general habits of our contemporaries. Manufacturing property, then, does not extend its rights in the same ratio as its importance. The manufacturing classes do not become less dependent, whilst they become more numerous, but on the contrary it would seem as if despotism lurked within them, and naturally grew with their growth. As a nation becomes more engaged in manufactures, the want of roads, canals, harbors, and other works of a semi-public nature, which facilitate the acquisition of wealth, is more strongly felt and as a nation becomes more democratic, private individuals are less able, and the state more able, to execute works of such magnitude. I do not hesitate to assert that the manifest tendency of all governments at the present time is to take upon themselves alone the execution of these undertakings, by which means they daily hold in closer dependence the population which they govern. On the other hand, in proportion as the power of a state increases, and its necessities are augmented, THE STATE CONSUMPTION OF MANUFACTURED PRODUCE IS ALWAYS GROWING LARGER, AND THESE COMMODITIES ARE GENERALLY MADE IN THE ARSENALS OR ESTABLISHMENTS OF THE GOVERNMENT. THUS, IN EVERY KINGDOM, THE RULER BECOMES THE PRINCIPAL MANUFACTURER. HE COLLECTS AND RETAINS IN HIS SERVICE A VAST NUMBER OF ENGINEERS, ARCHITECTS, MECHANICS, AND HANDICRAFTSMEN. NOT ONLY IS HE THE PRINCIPAL MANUFACTURER, BUT HE TENDS MORE AND MORE TO BECOME THE CHIEF, OR RATHER THE MASTER, OF ALL OTHER MANUFACTURERS as private persons become more powerless by becoming more equal they can effect nothing in manufactures without combination but the government naturally seeks to place these combinations under its own control it must be admitted that these collective beings which are called combinations are stronger and more formidable than a private individual can ever be and that they have less of the responsibility of their own actions whence it seems reasonable, that they should not be allowed to retain so great an independence of the supreme government as might be conceded to a private individual. Rulers are the more apt to follow this line of policy, as their own inclinations invite them to it. Amongst democratic nations it is only by association that the resistance of the people to the government can ever display itself. Hence the latter always looks with ill favor on those associations which are not in its own power, and it is well worthy of remark that amongst democratic nations the people themselves often entertain a secret feeling of fear and jealousy against these very associations which prevents the citizens from defending the institutions of which they stand so much in need the power and the duration of these small private bodies in the midst of the weakness and instability of the whole community astonish and alarm the people and the free use which each association makes of its natural powers is almost regarded as a dangerous privilege. All the associations which spring up in our age are, moreover, new corporate powers, whose rights have not been sanctioned by time. They come into existence at a time when the notion of private rights is weak, and when the power of government is unbounded. Hence it is not surprising that they lose their freedom at birth." Amongst all European nations there are some kinds of associations which cannot be formed until the State has examined their by-laws, and authorized their existence. In several others attempts are made to extend this rule to all associations. The consequences of such a policy, if it were successful, may easily be foreseen. If once the sovereign had a general right of authorizing associations of all kinds upon certain conditions, he would not be long without claiming the right of superintending and managing them, in order to prevent them from departing from the rules laid down by himself. In this manner the State, after having reduced all who are desirous of forming associations into dependents, would proceed to reduce into the same condition all who belong to the associations already formed, that is to say, almost all the men who are now in existence, Governments thus appropriate to themselves, and convert to their own purposes, the greater part of this new power which manufacturing interests have, in our time, brought into the world. Manufacturers govern us. They govern manufacturers. I attach so much importance to all that I have just been saying, that I am tormented by the fear of having impaired my meaning in seeking to render it more clear. If the reader thinks that the examples I have adduced to support my observations are insufficient or ill-chosen— if he imagines that I have anywhere exaggerated the encroachments of the Supreme Power, and, on the other hand, that I have underrated the extent of the sphere which still remains open to the exertions of individual independence, I entreat him to lay down the book for a moment, and to turn to his mind to reflect for himself upon the subjects I have attempted to explain. Let him attentively examine what is taking place in France, and in other countries. Let him inquire of those about him. Let him search himself— and i am much mistaken if he does not arrive without my guidance and by other paths at the point to which i have sought to lead him he will perceive that for the last half-century centralization has everywhere been growing up in a thousand different ways wars revolutions conquests have served to promote it all men have labored to increase it in the course of the same period during which men have succeeded each other with singular rapidity at the head of affairs their notions interests and passions have been infinitely diversified but all have by some means or other sought to centralize this instinctive centralization has been the only settled point amidst the extreme mutability of their lives and of their thoughts if the reader after having investigated these details of human affairs will seek to survey the wide prospect as a whole he will be struck by the result on the one hand the most settled dynasties shaken or overthrown the people everywhere escaping by violence from the sway of their laws, abolishing or limiting the authority of their rulers or their princes, the nations, which are not in open revolution, restless at least, and excited, all of them animated by the same spirit of revolt, and on the other hand, at this very period of anarchy, and amongst these untractable nations, the incessant increase of the prerogative of the supreme government, becoming more centralized, more adventurous, more absolute, more extensive the people perpetually falling under the control of the public administration led insensibly to surrender to it some further portion of their individual independence till the very men who from time to time upset a throne and trample on a race of kings bend more and more obsequiously to the slightest dictate of a clerk thus two contrary revolutions appear in our days to be going on the one continually weakening the supreme power the other as continually strengthening it. At no other period in our history has it appeared so weak or so strong. But upon a more attentive examination of the state of the world, it appears that these two revolutions are intimately connected together, that they originate in the same source, and that after having followed a separate course, they lead men at last to the same result. I may venture once more to repeat what I have already said or implied in several parts of this book. Great care must be taken not to confound the principle of equality, itself, with the revolution which finally establishes that principle, in the social condition, and the laws of a nation. Here lies the reason of almost all the phenomena which occasion our astonishment. All the old political powers of Europe, the greatest as well as the least, were founded in ages of aristocracy, and they more or less represented or defended the principles of inequality and of privilege." To make the novel wants and interests which the growing principle of equality introduced, preponderant in government, our contemporaries had to overturn or to coerce the established powers. This led them to make revolutions, and breathed into many of them that fierce love of disturbance and independence, which all revolutions, whatever be their object, always engender. I do not believe that there is a single country in Europe in which the progress of equality has not been preceded or followed by some violent changes in the state of property and persons, and almost all these changes have been attended with much anarchy and license, because they have been made by the least civilized portion of the nation against that which is most civilized. Hence proceeded the twofold contrary tendencies which I have just pointed out. As long as the democratic revolution was glowing with heat, The men who were bent upon the destruction of old aristocratic powers, hostile to that revolution, displayed a strong spirit of independence. But as the victory, or the principle, of equality became more complete, they gradually surrendered themselves to the propensities natural to that condition of equality, and they strengthened and centralized their governments. They had sought to be free in order to make themselves equal, but in proportion as equality was more established by the aid of freedom, freedom itself was thereby rendered of more difficult attainment. These two states of a nation have sometimes been contemporaneous. The last generation in France showed how a people might organize a stupendous tyranny in the community, at the very time when they were baffling the authority of the nobility and braving the power of all kings, at once teaching the world the way to win freedom, and the way to lose it. In our days men see that constituted powers are dilapidated on every side. They see all ancient authority gasping away, all ancient barriers tottering to their fall, and the judgment of the wisest is troubled at the sight. They attend only to the amazing revolution which is taking place before their eyes, and they imagine that mankind is about to fall into perpetual anarchy. If they looked to the final consequences of this revolution, their fears would perhaps assume a different shape. For myself, I confess that I can put no trust in the spirit of freedom which appears to animate my contemporaries. I see well enough that the nations of this age are turbulent, but I do not clearly perceive that they are liberal, and I fear lest, at the close of these perturbations which rock the base of thrones, the domination of sovereigns may prove more powerful than it ever was before. CHAPTER six: WHAT SORT OF DESPOTISM DEMOCRATIC NATIONS HAVE TO FEAR I had remarked during my stay in the United States that a democratic state of society, similar to that of the Americans, might offer singular facilities for the establishment of despotism, and I perceived upon my return to Europe how much use had already been made, by most of our rulers, of the notions, the sentiments, and the wants engendered by this same social condition, for the purpose of extending the circle of their power this led me to think that the nations of christendom would perhaps eventually undergo some sort of oppression like that which hung over several of the nations of the ancient world a more accurate examination of the subject and five years of further meditations have not diminished my apprehensions but they have changed the object of them no sovereign ever lived in former ages so absolute or so powerful as to undertake to administer by his own agency and without the assistance of intermediate powers all the parts of a great empire none ever attempted to subject all his subjects indiscriminately to strict uniformity of regulation and personally to tutor and direct every member of the community the notion of such an undertaking never occurred to the human mind and if any man had conceived it the want of information the imperfection of the administrative system and above all the natural obstacles caused by the inequality of conditions would speedily have checked the execution of so vast a design. When the Roman emperors were at the height of their power, the different nations of the empire still preserved manners and customs of great diversity. Although they were subject to the same monarch, most of the provinces were separately administered. They abounded in powerful and active municipalities, and although the whole government of the empire was centered in the hands of the emperor alone, and he always remained, upon occasions, the supreme arbiter in all manners, yet the detail of social life and private occupations lay for the most part beyond his control. The emperors possessed, it is true, an immense and unchecked power, which allowed them to gratify all their whimsical tastes, and to employ for that purpose the whole strength of the state. They frequently abused that power arbitrarily to deprive their subjects of property or of life, Their tyranny was extremely onerous to the few, but it did not reach the greater number. It was fixed to some few main objects, and neglected the rest. It was violent, but its range was limited. But it would seem that if despotism were to be established amongst the democratic nations of our days, it might assume a different character. It would be more extensive and more mild. It would degrade men without tormenting them. I do not question that in an age of instruction and equality like our own, sovereigns might easily succeed in collecting all political power into their own hands, and might interfere more habitually and decidedly within the circle of private interests than any sovereign of antiquity could ever do. But this same principle of equality which facilitates despotism tempers its rigor. We have seen how the manners of society become more humane and gentle in proportion as men become more alike and equal." When no member of the community has much power or much wealth, tyranny is, as it were, without opportunities and a field of action. As all fortunes are scanty, the passions of men are naturally circumscribed, their imagination limited, their pleasures simple. This universal moderation moderates the sovereign himself, and checks within certain limits the inordinate extent of his desires. Independently of these reasons, drawn from the nature of the state of society itself, I might add many others arising from causes beyond my subject, but I shall keep within the limits I have laid down to myself. Democratic governments may become violent and even cruel at certain periods of extreme effervescence or of great danger, but these crises will be rare and brief. When I consider the petty passions of our contemporaries, the mildness of their manners, the extent of their education, the purity of their religion, the gentleness of their morality, their regular and industrious habits, and the restraint which they almost all observe in their vices no less than in their virtues, I have no fear that they will meet with tyrants in their rulers, but rather guardians. I think that the species of oppression by which democratic nations are menaced is unlike anything which ever before existed in the world. Our contemporaries will find no prototype of it in their memories." I am trying myself to choose an expression which will accurately convey the whole of the idea I have formed of it, but, in vain, the old words despotism and tyranny are inappropriate, the thing itself is new, and since I cannot name it I must attempt to define it. I seek to trace the novel features under which despotism may appear in the world. The first thing that strikes the observation is an innumerable multitude of men, all equal and alike incessantly endeavouring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. Each of them, living apart, is as a stranger to the fate of all the rest. His children and his private friends constitute to him the whole of mankind. As for the rest of his fellow-citizens, he is close to them, but he sees them not. He touches them, but fills them not. He exists, but in himself and for himself alone. And if his kindred still remain to him, he may be said at any rate to have lost his country. Above this race of men stands an immense and tutelary power, which takes upon itself alone to secure their gratifications, and to watch over their fate. That power is absolute, minute, regular, provident, and mild. It would be like the authority of a parent, if, like that authority, its object was to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, on the contrary, to keep them in perpetual childhood, it is well content that the people should rejoice, providing they think of nothing but rejoicing. For their happiness such a government willingly labors, but it chooses to be the sole agent and the only arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and supplies their necessities, facilitates their pleasures, manages their principal concerns, directs their industry, regulates the descent of property, and subdivides their inheritances, what remains, but to spare them all the care of thinking and all the trouble of living. Thus it every day renders the exercise of the free agency of man less useful and less frequent. It circumscribes the will within a narrower range, and gradually robs a man of all the uses of himself. The principle of equality has prepared men for these things. It has predisposed men to endure them, and oftentimes to look on them as benefits." After having thus successively taken each member of the community in its powerful grasp, and fashioned them at will, the supreme power then extends its arm over the whole community. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated rules, minute and uniform, through which the most original minds and the most energetic characters cannot penetrate, to rise above the crowd. The will of man is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act, but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy, but it prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people, till each nation is reduced to be nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd. I have always thought that servitude of the regular, quiet, and gentle kind, which I have just described, might be combined more easily than is commonly believed with some of the outward forms of freedom, and that it might even establish itself under the wing of the sovereignty of the people. Our contemporaries are constantly excited by two conflicting passions. They want to be led, and they wish to remain free. As they cannot destroy either one or the other of these contrary propensities, they strive to satisfy them both at once." They devise a sole, tutelary, and all-powerful form of government, but elected by the people. They combine the principle of centralization and that of popular sovereignty. This gives them a respite. They console themselves for being in tutelage by the reflection that they have chosen their own guardians. Every man allows himself to be put in leading strings, because he sees that it is not a person or a class of persons, but the people at large that holds the end of his chain. By this system the people shake off their state of dependence just long enough to select their master, and then relapse into it again. A great many persons, at the present day, are quite contented with this sort of compromise between administrative despotism and the sovereignty of the people, and they think they have done enough for the protection of individual freedom when they have surrendered it to the power of the nation at large. This does not satisfy me, the nature of him I am to obey signifies less to me than the fact of extorted obedience. I do not, however, deny that a constitution of this kind appears to me to be infinitely preferable to one which, after having concentrated all powers of the government, should vest them in the hands of an irresponsible person or body of persons. Of all the forms which democratic despotism could assume, the latter would assuredly be the worst. When the sovereign is elected, or narrowly watched by a legislature which is really elective and independent, the oppression which he exercises over individuals is sometimes greater, but it is always less degrading, because every man, when he is oppressed and disarmed, may still imagine that whilst he yields obedience it is to himself he yields it, and that it is to one of his own inclinations that all the rest give way in like manner i can understand that when the sovereign represents the nation and is dependent upon the people the rights and the power of which every citizen is deprived not only serve the head of the state but the state itself and that private persons derive some return from the sacrifice of their independence which they have made to the public to create a representation of the people in every centralized country is therefore to diminish the evil which extreme centralization may produce but not to get rid of it. I admit that by this means room is left for the intervention of individuals in the more important affairs, but it is not the less suppressed in the smaller and more private ones. It must not be forgotten that it is especially dangerous to enslave men in the minor details of life. For my own part I should be inclined to think freedom is less necessary in great things than in little ones, if it were possible to be secure of the one without possessing the other." Subjection in minor affairs breaks out every day, and is felt by the whole community, indiscriminately. It does not drive men to resistance, but it crosses them at every turn, till they are led to surrender the exercise of their will. Thus their spirit is gradually broken, and their character enervated, whereas that obedience, which is exacted on a few important but rare occasions, only exhibits servitude at certain intervals, and throws the burden of it upon a small number of men. It is in vain to summon a people, which has been rendered so dependent on the central power, to choose from time to time the representatives of that power. This rare and brief exercise of their free choice, however important it may be, will not prevent them from gradually losing the faculties of thinking, feeling, and acting for themselves, and thus gradually falling below the level of humanity. I add that they will soon become incapable of exercising the great and only privilege which remains to them. The democratic nations which have introduced freedom into their political constitution at the very time when they were augmenting the despotism of their administrative constitution have been led into strange paradoxes to manage those minor affairs in which good sense is all that is wanted the people are held to be unequal to the task but when the government of the country is at stake the people are invested with immense powers they are alternately made the playthings of their ruler and his masters more than kings and less than men. After having exhausted all the different modes of election, without finding one to suit their purpose, they are still amazed, and still bent on seeking further, as if the evil they remark did not originate in the constitution of the country far more than in that of the electoral body. It is indeed difficult to conceive how men who have entirely given up the habit of self-government should succeed in making a proper choice of those by whom they are to be governed, and no one will ever believe that a liberal, wise, and energetic government can spring from the suffrages of a subservient people. A constitution which should be republican in its head, and ultra-monarchical in all its other parts, has ever appeared to me to be a short-lived monster. The vices of rulers and the ineptitude of the people would speedily bring about its ruin, and the nation, weary of its representatives and of itself, would create freer institutions, or soon return to stretch itself at the feet of a single master." End of Part 4, Chapters 5 and 6